0: Hannah Brown
1: Chris McLeish, here we are back with episode number 71
0: Where have we been?
1: Well, <laughs> <laughs> it's a fair question to ask, to be perfectly honest, yes. I won't lie
0: It's just been a while, we've been both been incredibly busy over the past month and a bit So finding time yeah. to record has just been a challenge, but we're back
1: Exactly, it's all good, it's fine um, I mean, we should put into context also that in that time, it's not like we've just not been doing the podcast and seen each other. We literally haven't seen each other. No,
0: we haven't had the opportunity. We had a brief we, encounter on Sunday.
1: We did. We inadvertently bumped into each other at the cinema, which was very, very weird.
0: Yes, but not unexpected, actually, because we were there seeing Moulin Rouge.
1: We were there seeing Moulin Rouge. It was being screened as part of the Glasgow Youth Film Festival. Um, I got a rose from a can-can dancer. Just want to put very that out there. Very
0: nice, very nice. I think
1: that's because I was sitting at the end of an aisle. But I would like to point out that she saw my vintage style and she was like, "That girl needs a rose." So I think thank you're you. probably right.
0: I was wearing thank a you. very modern hoodie with a tie-dye you, type you print. You were
1: because this is no. This is the weirdest thing because we genuinely didn't. We had no clue that either of us were going to be there. I was sitting up the back with my family. And then I saw Rebecca, who is a mutual friend and colleague, mm-hmm. come in. And I was like, oh my God, there's Rebecca. I've not seen her in ages. And then two seconds later, I was like, that's Chris McLeish. <laughs> <laughs> Chris McLeish is here as well. <laughs> so I was going to run after you. But I thought, I'll, I'll speak to you at the end. It's fine. And there was like five minutes before the film started. so
0: Yeah. It was good. I mean, we all know Moulin Rouge is fabulous, but it's just so good
1: so good even better like and it's one of those films that just is made for cinema it's made to be on like a big screen it was very so, good because it is a film that feels a bit like an acid trip but it felt even more trippy yeah actually being on screen the, so. the
0: thing I was thinking about is how there are so many things in that film that shouldn't have worked but because mm. they went so full tilt with the stylized nature of it there are oh, loads yeah. of things at the time they probably thought this is risky, but let's do it and see what happens. And they they did it, but it doesn't take away from the fact that it is one of the best love story films ever, in my opinion.
1: Oh, I like absolutely like fully agree. It was definitely one of those go hard or go home like moments. There was yeah. no point in sort of like just half doing it. So, like they went all out and it paid off. Although well, it I should have won the Oscar.
0: Agreed. Saying. Agreed. Nicole, you were robbed. She was. But I think by going so full like out with the weird stuff and the quirky moments, the realis- the realism and the moments of intimacy and all that kind of stuff hit so much harder.
1: Yeah, And absolutely. then the ending
0: obviously hits really hard because you've been kind of giggling away the whole time because the, show- the story's a bit daft. Um,
1: exactly. And the thing is, like... I'm sure most of us have seen Will but if you haven't, if you watch it, it tells you what the end is about three minutes into the film. <laughs>
0: yeah, I think the first line's so, ever spoken. Literally,
1: yeah, one of the first lines tells you what happens at the end. But even so, you still sit the whole film and you're like, oh, what happens isn't going to happen Yeah, because it does sort of lull you into this false sense of security and stuff like that. And then obviously the ending does inevitably go down the way it is predicted. So, um, oofed. Oofed, oofed, oofed. It does, it does. What was great though is that you could tell there was definitely people in this near me that had never seen the film before and were emotional wrecks. <laughs>
0: yeah, and there were a fair few sniffers. We also had an audible gasper just to my right. So there's the bit where Christian says, um, "Because she doesn't love you." She
1: doesn't love you. Oh my god! And yes. then, as he said
0: that, this person <laughs> next to me went.
1: Oh!
0: It was so good. It was so dramatic.
1: I love reactions in the cinema so much. It just makes it so much better. Yeah. Oh my god. What time.
0: But that was marvellous. But other than that, we have not seen each other at all.
1: Well, the last time we saw each other in person, we were doing a little Cheeky Kaylee dancing. Yes! Yes. We were at our lovely friend Sally's wedding, and we had a delightful evening. Chris was in a kilt. People of course. It happened. Um and we did a little Kaylee dancing. We made Mrs. Jones Kaylee dance. Yes, <laughs> which he had a great time. I don't time. think he was. I don't think he was thrilled, but he was a good sport and he did it.
0: Yeah, well, he did enjoy it. On reflection,
1: that's good. Mm-hmm. That's all that matters. So, um, yeah, but oh my god, it's been a long time since I've Kaylee danced, and I was knackered. Well, let me we tell you,
0: I had just had COVID
1: well that's true yeah because this was the thing pals we didn't know whether Chris was going to make it or not yeah so my day of freedom um, was
0: the day of the wedding although I gave myself quite a wide berth because I did like a full 10 days just in case because I'm a paranoid Polly still but yeah um so it was but it was a marvelous evening marvelous
1: it was it was it was a great time all of a sudden it was like half past 12 and we're like oh we need to oh, go home now bye um <laughs> yeah it was good They were the most beautiful brides and it made my heart happy so much. Me too. You were fringing this year?
0: I was fringing. It was highly successful.
1: Yep. Do you care to tell the lovely listeners what you were fringing this year?
0: So in short, I was in a show called Big (laughs) Band Does Broadway, which is a trip through musical theatre from the 1920s to modern day with a kind of big band sound. With eight singers. We got five-star reviews across the board. I got nominated for best singing performance for my solo. Thank you very much. Um uh, we had a great time. And the show <laughs> the show was beautiful as well because the whole latter part of the show was a celebration of gender and sexuality identity. Because we did yes. a mashup of the prom with kinky boots and then we closed. That number with um, the inclusive flag and the trans flag. And it was all, and there was confetti cannons. And it was just a big celebration of um, identity. So that was nice. And I was working as a front of house supervisor and box office person as well for that theatre. And I was also working down at Ian McKellen's Hamlet, which was a delight.
1: Pals, Chris has come back with a famous acquaintance so yeah just there you go (laughs)
0: we passed we were like two ships passing from time to time had one proper conversation with him but wasn't at his show he'd come to the theater i was working at where my show was (laughs) to see a show so i spoke to him there which was Uh odd but then um yeah fun and i also went to see medea the national theater of scotland's medea which was fabulous
1: oh yeah very
0: good Except for some old man sitting in the, the seating area whose phone went off and it was a standing performance. So we were all around the stage and everyone just oh, looked okay. up at him and he was scrambling to find his phone. <laughs> I was like, come on.
1: Oh, you don't want that to happen to no. you. That's always very embarrassing. No.
0: And one of my favorite moments that happened during my show is that there were, there was one performance where I was doing my solo and there were times where I watched people averting their eyes during my solo. I was singing I Am What I Am and I was wearing a very short little sparkly sequin dress. The costume was decided right. at the very last minute. It was, it was fabulous. It looked amazing. But.
1: I, I'm sure you
0: did. There were definitely people in the audience that didn't feel comfortable with my existence. And I was like, screw you. I'm going to sing this to you. Um, but also there was one performance where I was like, there is a girl on her phone this entire song. Right in the center of the audience, and it was winding me up no end. Oh I was like, my Get off God. your phone. Then the next number comes along that I was in, which is the lame is uh, Masha. Uh-huh. So I step forward to sing Bring Him Home, and I clock the same girl, still with her face aglow. It turns out she was just really pale, and she was picking up the light from the stage. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, How oh rude. My God. On your phone this whole time? Nope, just really pale. <laughs> <laughs> And I thoroughly enjoyed oh, I, I'm glad god. she was there I'm glad she was having a nice time I just wish that she wasn't quite so Like a little beacon that made me think she was on her phone
1: Oh no, pale people problem Right yeah, there That's it, that's it. <laughs> oh, no.
0: But yeah, it was all good other than that
1: <clears throat> Oh god Oh that's embarrassing Yeah. I can empathise though, like fair yeah. like, We do We do tend to reflect like yeah, just <laughs> Like tinfoil Pick it up I'm trying to think what I did. So, I well, I went to Venice. Yes. Yeah. We were just talking about that pre pod because mm-hmm. we were catching up for yeah. <laughs> forty five minutes. Um, so I went to Venice, and that was a stunning and lovely time. Mm-hmm. Um, that that Venice is just a bizarre, really wonderful place. Yeah. Because it's just like it's a place that shouldn't exist, but it's just in like its own little bubble. In yeah. the world Like it's honestly like It feels like a place kind of out Of like a book mm-hmm. It's very strange But I went there and that was a great time um, I had like curated A whole holiday wardrobe So I went dressed a little bit like I was going to solve like an Agatha Christie Murder mystery
0: <laughs> I'm sure you fit in fine
1: Well thank you So I kind of went uh, dressed like that Which was good fun Um but yeah, it was it was amazing. I saw some really cool things. Went to La Fenice, which is a really historic opera house, because Lovely. of course I did. And that was really cool. Uh they had a exhibition on Maria because she was famed for like her performances there. So that was really cool to kinda see that and even though it has since like it's been burned down and rebuilt a couple of times, so it's not the original. Yeah. Um But still just to be there And you know I'm all about energies And I was like just feeling the energy of all the famous people That had like Passed through that spot and all that kind of stuff So that felt really There was a lot of like opera history there Which I found really cool Went and did, it was also very like touristy Museum-y thing, so we did the Doge's Palace as well Um, As I was saying to you, McLeish Went into the prisons Mm -hmm. Which were not built for tall people (laughs) Um, there was lots of ducking under archways And sort yeah,
0: of I'm familiar
1: f- through corners and stuff like that It was great I mean it added like a whole sort of like escape room element to.
0: Can't complain
1: um, Love can't escape Can't complain
0: room. Okay wait, uh, do we, Are we doing a question?
1: I have a question oh, if you would so care to hear the please question Please do it <clears throat> I feel like I should point out that <laughs> My voice isn't great on this episode, because there was recently building work being done in my house, and mm-hmm. I inhaled a lot of uh, dust, yes. and the dust irritated my throat. And as McLeish will attest, my voice was worse than this yes. on Sunday. <clears throat> you had it was non-existent. No mm-hmm. Yeah, it was non-existent on Sunday, so um, there might be lots of clearing my throat. So I do apologise. That's okay. In advance, um,
0: if I, if Chris McLeish has been clever, you will never know because they will be gone in the edit.
1: Well, that's true. That's just a, te- a testament to your editing skills. What can I say? Your question for episode 71, McLeish, mm-hmm. is what fact have you learned on the podcast so far that surprised you the most?
0: Ooh, that's a very good question.
1: Because there's been lots of twi- twisty things that we have not expected. Do you want mine? Yes, yeah, go for yours. Go for yours. Straight away. The fact that... Not only was Washington Irving Scott, like part, part Scottish because of his parents and his ancestry, mm-hmm. but also that he was pals with Walter Scott. Yeah, that That'll is surprising. Nev- that will never fail to blow my mind. <laughs> I think overall, <laughs> time.
0: the number of random connections between stories and how often that as well. particular people will often crop up in different stories. And you're like, how are you there? You were just in this other yeah. story we told. <laughs> like um, <laughs> Little John. Little John crops up everywhere.
1: Literally, Belle and Little John, they got about did those boys. Yeah, But it's just, it's really, really funny how, yeah, that people will crop up time and time again. Do you know what also as well, the amount of incest. Yeah. Just in history in general, I knew it was bad, but there are some stories where they've been really taking the mic.
0: The thing that's just come into my head, it's not surprising, but it is also disappointing, is how little information you can find about many of the women in history, obviously.
1: I fully agree with that. That
0: was, that's tough going sometimes because it's hard to kind of body out your story a little bit and you can't find information about these women because people just didn't write about them as much as the boring old men. But when you find a good story about a woman, there are so (laughs) many fascinating, badass women in Scottish history. So that's that's not surprising. But... It's disappointing that there's not as much information on them as you'd like.
1: Yeah. Oh no, I fully agree. Like, I think that's why there is such a movement today about sort of rewriting women back into history because it is so male-centric. Which, because it was, because it was men that were doing all the important things, because all ladies were permitted to do was sit and sew something.
0: (laughs) Yes, true. And occasionally they would go out. That was the height
1: of their excitement. They would sometimes (laughs) be mad
0: assassins, though. Sometimes they would hold the the fort at a castle, throw boulders, wave hankies.
1: Exactly. That's the thing, is that some of them really did do, like, incredible feats and were, like, amazing, but we just don't really know about them because why would you write about a woman? Do
0: you know what I mean? Do
1: you know what I mean?
0: Also, surprised at some of the ages that some of the people we've spoken to managed to reach because they lived in such rubbish times. There are so many people we've covered that yeah. were like, and they lived to 94. And you're like, how? Yeah. <laughs> how? <laughs> that's a surprise.
1: That's fun. Enough. Just because you mentioned Little John, that's another thing that surprised me as well, is that he lived through the entirety of the Victorian era. And by that, I mean the entirety of Queen Victoria's reign.
0: Yes.
1: Because he lived until he was like 80-odds. He was born like, was it the year before Burke and Hare went in their murder spree? And he died in like 19... 19- I can't remember, like 16 or something like that mad. It's wild Yeah. It's mad
0: Fun times
1: um, But yeah, there's lots of very
0: I know that I always go back to this episode But it is one of my personal favourites Because I was proud of it uh-huh. Is the Titanic stories I'm surprised at yep. how many Scottish people Were involved in the Titanic
1: That's a very good one Yeah, that's a very good point actually
0: Person upon person kept coming up And I was like, how? There's so many of you
1: yeah, well, do you know what? See, sticking with the boat theme yeah. is that I was the same when I did the episode about the Terror, mm-hmm. the Erebus and Terror, was the amount of Scottish sailors that were on those ships. They just can't get enough. That... That's the thing. <laughs> but it comes back It comes back to that thing of, like, the, they're kind of, like, not written out of history, but they're not really documented as much, and then any fictional telling isn't necessarily an accurate portrayal, so you just presume, oh, there weren't any... Which is why I was so shocked that some of the central characters in the Terror TV series, which is a great TV series, don't get me wrong, like I love it, but when it transpired that quite a few of them were Scottish, I was like, oh.
0: Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Didn't
1: know. I I agree with you on how much Scottish history is interconnected. It's very weird.
0: We always say it, there's not that many of us.
1: Well, that's true. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And let's be honest is that quite a lot of the people that we feature all kind of come from the same field. They're usually either medical or they're serial killers. So there's no inventory, Sometimes really. Sometimes both. <laughs> Sometimes both. Oh, my God. I'm currently reading a book called, oh, God, The Way of All Flesh, oh. I think. Do you have that? By Ambrose Parry.
0: Yes, Ambrose Parry is... Not even one person. It's a husband and wife duo.
1: It's two people. It's Christopher Brookmeyer and his wife. People will probably know Christopher Brookmeyer and his crime novels. But it's so good. Have you read it? Or have you just got it?
0: I enjoyed it. I enjoyed the historical side of it. And I enjoyed the stuff that I was like, I recognize this. I recognize this. I recognize this. It was occasionally too slow for me. Mm -hmm. But the second one is good. But... It's playing it like Simpson's got himself into all all sorts of troubles. And mm. uh, do you know
1: what Simpson is someone we have not actually covered on the project.
0: I know, and weirdly, it's because I can't actually. I've tried digging into him a few times, and I've never really found anything really like juicy, a story that's really juicy about him.
1: He he was just kind of good at what he did. I yeah. think is sort of yeah the basis of it. We should point out that James Simpson. Was the person that kind of advocated chloroform as yes. <laughs> Like pain relief um, in, Or like anest- early anesthetic yeah. In surgery But the reason I thought about that About history being interconnected Is that I, read, I was reading a chapter this morning And one of the characters Makes a comment They're like reading a paper or something like that Makes a comment about a man being found guilty in Glasgow Of killing his wife and it's thought that he poisoned her, and that he killed another girl in a fire. And I was like, "That's a human crocodile. That's, a that's human him. crocodile.
0: That's him. Story number <laughs> four, or whatever I know it was. Him. Yes.
1: Oh, I love it when that happens in historical novels. I'm like, I know who that is.
0: Yeah. No, that's. The, I think that's what I did enjoy about that book. How weird we're both reading the same like series. How
1: strange. That, I kind of love that though. Well, I inadvertently started reading the second one first because I thought it was the first book and then I found the first one and I was like, wait. <laughs> <laughs> so I've gone back to the first one. So I'm re- everything makes much more sense now that I'm reading the first one first. So. Yes. Good. Um,
0: well, that's good.
1: Well, it's so funny. Our previous conversation is actually quite apt to my story this week. I'm not going to lie. Yes. Um, because it do be about... A badass lady, Susan Boyle. That... <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, um, she's not necessi- She's not Scottish herself, but she is connected to Scottish history, which is a point I will get to towards the end of the story. Let's kick off with another story after a very long break. Yay! <laughs> so Caroline Sheridan is born on the twenty-second of March, eighteen o eight, in London. Her paternal grandfather and grandmother are the Irish playwright Richard Brinsley Sheridan and soprano Elizabeth Ann Lindley. So she comes from a theatrical dynasty. Yes. She does. So Sheridan's theatrical works include The Rivals in 1775, which was actually most recently adapted by Richard Bean and Oliver Chris at the National Theatre in London. Beautiful. Um, And he also wrote a play that's quite famous called The School for Scandal in 1777. I've never seen any of his works myself. I have heard of The Rivals. I think it was maybe done at the Sits as well before it closed. Um, But he's kind of a sort of comedy of manners type of writer. Like your archetypal sort of 18th century, slightly farcical stuff, I think. Okay says the girl. I I mean, I really should know. I believe it. I don't. Um, So Caroline herself would go on to be a writer as she would author several novels and poems in her time. So, um, Upon her father's death in 1817, the family faces serious financial problems, as was occasionally the way. Caroline and her sisters, Helen and Georgiana, are considered three beauties of society, her sisters go on to marry a baron and a duke, respectively.
0: The duke?
1: I know, it's all very Bridgerton, right? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, yes, so the sisters, the Sheridan sisters, are kind of known within London society mm-hmm. as being very accomplished. And, like, this is early 19th century. That's kind of like, your worth was based on the languages you could speak and yeah. how... Artistic, you were, um, but they were considered, yeah, they were considered uh, very beautiful and very accomplished ladies. Um, I also believe that they kind of knew the royals, and I think I read somewhere that one of the royal family kind of gave the family an apartment because they were so they were like close to bankruptcy, basically. That's nice of them. That's that's a thing. Her sisters go on and marry high ups in society, and a match is also made on behalf. Of Caroline.
0: Ah, arranged marriages. Ah,
1: hmm. Yes, the classic. So, the classic. George Chapel Norton, who was born on the 31st of August 1800, was a barrister and latterly a Conservative Member of Parliament.
0: Mm hmm. Yep.
1: Yeah. At the age of 19 and somewhat at the encouragement of her mother, Caroline arguably reluctantly marries Norton. It's not necessarily an arranged marriage, but I, from what I was reading, I think her mother was kind of like, it would be for the best if you go and marry this guy. Yeah. So, as was kind of done at the time, like, and at nineteen, she was getting on a bit.
0: (laughs) Yeah, past her (laughs) prime.
1: So she was like, "You want to get married before you're twenty-one? So maybe just do this. Might be best for you." Yeah. Uh, But funnily enough, it wasn't. Because okay. uh, the Nortons' marriage was anything but a happy one. Norton was known to be a possessive and jealous husband, and he would frequently take his drunken violence out on Caroline. So, he was a bad man. Yeah. <laughs> he was a bad person. What did not help matters was that Norton was, by some accounts, uh, not particularly successful in his work as a barrister, which is a problem. Uh, as this led to frequent fights about the couple over their financial situation, so from what I was reading, he was, really wasn't very good at his job. Okay whatsoever. So that money issues just kind of added to the mix along with the fact he was like abusive yeah. and was drunk all the time. So Yeah. Not, yeah. not great. It's not great. Nevertheless, Caroline did establish herself as an influential hostess in society. So not only was she friends with political figures such as two-time Prime Minister Benjamin Disraeli, she was also popular within chris you can't make I'm sorry.
0: That's just a it's a name I've never I heard just before. Saw your,
1: it was so funny, I just saw you make the face, and I was like, he's never heard that name before. I've
0: never heard that name before.
1: <laughs> I knew what the face meant. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my god Oh dear
0: Well there you go You've been educated today Twice I never even I had no idea You
1: did it once Twice Two time prime minister Oh
0: god <laughs> There
1: Clear you list. go You've learned something um, And Caroline was also popular Within literary circles um, Another of her friends Was a certain Mary Shelley Oh big shells. That's fun Big shells herself Was a pal of Caroline That's fabulous So there you go Despite continuing to abuse his wife Both physically and psychologically Norton utilises his wife's connections And popularity in society circles In order to further advance His own career Of course he did Classic, why would you not do that? No Like, ugh, honest. this story makes me It's got a happy-ish ending But it makes me okay. so angry Okay. <laughs> like, he was just a bad person I'm here for Like, it. I just can't even So her influence awards him the position of a metropolitan police magistrate But his behaviour does not cease Caroline returns to writing as both an emotional outlet And as a means of independently making money So at this point, you can kind of see that Caroline Norton Tried to distance herself financially Mm -hmm. from her husband Because if she was financially independent, quote-unquote Because you never could really be as a married woman, mm-hmm. it may be, it made it easier for them to live separate lives. Right. If you get what I mean. So she publishes The Sorrows of Rosalie in 1829 and The Undying One in 1830. And she's also invited to edit women's magazine La Belle Assemblée. So she was very much um, revered mm-hmm. and kind of... Writing circles She'd, She did have a certain degree of popularity I think So after suffering a violent beating at the hands of her husband Caroline miscarries their fourth child
0: mm.
1: Yeah So in 1836 Caroline leaves him
0: That's controversial
1: That is controversial yeah. And this gets me on to the next point So women leaving their husbands was not deemed acceptable By society standards No matter the violence or abuse They may have suffered It was a very much, not that, well, I suppose to a certain extent in that time, it was kind of more accepted, Mm -hmm. kind of, what is domestic violence now, is that it kind of was sort of, like, came as part of marriage, you just, it was all that, you hear loads of, like, accounts of people like, oh, you just have to try and make it work, and you're like, well, no, if this person is a bad, violent person, then... You can't make anything work no. if they're just a model. Yeah. So uh it's just yeah. Yeah. The laws were flawed at the time. So Caroline tried to live financially independent from her husband, but Norton claimed that anything she earned was rightfully, by law, his. Which it was. anything a wife earned was legally the husband's. That's
0: absolute nonsense.
1: Thank you, isn't it?
0: I mean, <laughs> But then this is a period where the woman is also kind of his property as well. Yeah, fully, literally. Yeah, it's like if if I owned a hen and the hen had eggs, those eggs are mine. Yeah. Same difference. Effectively. Yeah, and that's why we call women hen.
1: (laughs) Just kidding. There you go. That's where that word comes from. (laughs) I wish it didn't. It really upsets me. Despite allegedly being a terrible barrister, uh, Norton successfully argues his claim over Caroline's earnings. So he's getting her money. Caroline played him at his own game, however, as she racked up bills in her husband's name, telling the creditors that the debt owed was to be paid by him. Because technically, because it was in his name, the debt was his, not hers.
0: Clever, clever laughs.
1: Well done, we're here for that, we're here for pettiness So as tensions between the couple continue to rise Norton accuses Caroline of having an affair with close friend Lord Melbourne Fiercely damaging her reputation Um, Norton demands £10,000 from Melbourne Mm -hmm. Yeah, which is a whole lot of money for the time um, But he refuses to yield to blackmail So Norton takes Melbourne to court it is after a nine day trial does the jury dismiss Norton's claim although the damage has very much been done Uh, both Caroline and Melbourne's names have been dragged through the mud and Norton refuses to divorce her so under English law in 1836 children are the legal property of their father their mother has little to no rights whatsoever Caroline had three sons with Norton and in their initial separation, Norton takes them to Scotland. He refuses to tell her their whereabouts. He effectively abducts their children. Yeah. Yeah. Her youngest son dies from complications after a riding accident, and she accuses Norton of neglect and blames him for the death. It is after this event that Caroline is permitted to visit her children, but only whilst to supervise, and she still has no rights over custody.
0: I'd stuff them in my bag.
1: <laughs> you just take a really big suitcase yeah.
0: Although I make that joke And that actually happened to Marilyn Monroe True story What? Marilyn Monroe was being looked after by I believe her auntie Because her mum was not a stable woman And her uh-huh. mum showed up to visit her And she stuffed her inside, a t- inside like a duffel bag
1: Oh lord yeah. Poor Marilyn Yeah, Yeah. not a good So I don't
0: actually recommend stuff in children in bags unless they've granted permission.
1: I I think that's fair. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Caroline begins campaigning for the rights of both married and divorced women. Parliament debate divorce reform in 1855 and Caroline submits an account of her own experience of marriage and the inequalities of women. She writes, and I quote, an English wife may not leave her husband's house. Not only can he sue her for restitution of conjugal rights, but he has a right to enter the house of any friend or relation with whom she may take refuge and carry her away by force. If her husband takes proceedings for a divorce, she is not, in the first instance, allowed to defend herself. She is not represented by attorney, nor permitted to be considered a party to the suit between him and her supposed lover for quote-unquote damages. If an English wife can be guilty of infidelity, her husband can divorce her so to marry again, but she cannot divorce the husband, however profligate he may be. Those dear children, the loss of whose patterning steps and sweet occasional voices made the silence of my new home intolerable as the anguish of death. What I suffered respecting those children, God knows, under the evil law which suffered any man for vengeance or for interest to take the baby children from the mother. Okay. So she is very much saying married women Have nothing Mm -hmm. We have no rights To our income We have no rights over our protection She was effectively saying in that first kind of paragraph Is that If if a husband was violent towards his wife And she was to say Was to go and like Stay with a friend He has the legal right to go into that house And take her back by force Mm -hmm. And that's fine So she's very much, it's very much kind of just saying, this system sucks. (laughs) Let's do something about that. Yeah. (laughs) Which, for the 1830s, like, or like, 1830s going into 1850s, that was not, women didn't do that. Yeah. Like, this is proper high politics that she was getting, really getting herself into here. So, good on Caroline. Yeah. Well done, her. Caroline's campaign culminated in the passing of the Custody of Infants Act, 1839, and this permitted mothers to petition the courts for custody of her children. Her efforts also brought about the Matrimonial Causes Act, 1857, making obtaining a divorce easier, bringing in the concept of marriage as a contract rather than a sacrament, and permitted one to remarry if already divorced. Okay. Nice. The act also abolished the crime of criminal conversation, which was a euphemism for adultery, and this was the very thing Caroline had been accused of conducting with Lord Melbourne. Her, compa- her campaigning did pay off. Yeah. Because it did bring about change. Um, upon Norton's death in 1875, Caroline was finally freed from the marriage that brought her so much suffering. Although she would go on to marry again.
0: No, nah, okay.
1: She does. It is thought around 1847, Caroline first meets Sir William Stirling Maxwell. Do you remember the surname?
0: I do know the name Maxwell. Um, can't pinpoint where. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so the Maxwell's family ancestral seat what was, was what was known as Nether Pollock, which is now a south region of Glasgow. The family property was Pollock House, and we spoke all about the Pollock witches we did, we on did. the pod. Woo! So, Sir William and Caroline were good friends and there is speculation that if she had been granted a divorce from Norton, they would have married earlier in life. With both their respective partners having died, they marry in the March of 1877 and Caroline becomes Lady Sterling Maxwell. Beautiful. Their happiness would be short-lived, oh, good. however. Yeah, as Caroline dies a mere three months later on the 15th of June. Oh. Yeah, so she did have a little bit of happiness at the end, but it's really sad. Caroline Norton broke many boundaries in speaking out in support for the rights of women of her time, although she has arguably fallen out of public consciousness. In 2021, English Heritage announced that a blue plaque is to be unveiled in Caroline's name, marking her London home. And as a member of the Maxwell family, however fleeting it may have been, Caroline's portrait, painted by William Etty, hangs in the silver corridor of Pollock House. And that is the activist work of Caroline Norton.
0: Beautiful.
1: So the reason she's connected to Scottish history is because she married one of the Maxwells. Yes, so. yes, and she's got <laughs> so a portrait of she... Pollock House. Yeah, so that's why, that's why, so, but yeah. No, oh, I love Had it. Have you heard of Miss Norton?
0: I hadn't I'm all for anyone who's Takes a stand for Their rights and all that kind of stuff That's What Jem.
1: Yeah she very much She very much did And she was very Very passionate About Kind of divorce reform And mothers having rights mm-hmm. To the access to their children Because I don't think it's until you look Kind of look back Is that you realise that Like we, we always kind of joke about Like a woman had They couldn't do anything in that time. They couldn't have property. It's not until you really look at it, you're like, well, actually, they really didn't have many rights at all. So the fact that Caroline, who in certain circles was very influential and very respected, did kind of stick her head above the parapet and was like, look, this isn't okay. Yeah. Like, this isn't all right. There needs to be change here. And... Good for her. She could... Speak from experience because her husband was a monster.
0: Yes. They were an all the a monster. Absolute monster. Although every time you said Norton in my head I'd go, Norton here's a who in my head. <laughs> um <laughs> and I was waiting for an opportune moment for that to make sense. Um <laughs> But oh my it God. didn't present itself.
1: It didn't present itself. Well, I appreciate the joke now. Thank you. If it's any consolation.
0: <laughs> it's one of those jokes that I'm like, this is a joke I would have made. Yeah. Here it is. <laughs> um, well, but lovely. Not
1: here now. So yeah, another badass lady connected to Scottish history that kind of paved the way for women's rights. Although she was kind of known to be vehemently against women's suffrage. Uh,
0: but well, no one's perfect. Quite,
1: but funnily, funnily enough, quite a lot of women were at the time. Yeah. Like that—that that wasn't uncommon. Yeah. She did. She did do a lot. For the early women's rights movement Yeah And then had a little bit of happiness before she died Really really sadly
0: Poor thing How old was she?
1: She was 69 Oh that's
0: not bad
1: So to me, like 1877 she died So I mean, to make it to 69 In the Victorian era was quite good going To be perfectly honest But I think it just feels more tragic is because she went through That horrendous marriage with Norton Yeah And then, when you read about her and Sir William Sterling Maxwell, they did seem to have a genuine kind of, like, friendship and connection. Yeah. So, he gave her a little bit of happiness. And she's actually buried with him and his first wife. Oh, that's
0: nice. The first wife will be, like... A bit crowded, but... (laughs) The first wife will be giving her the evil eye.
1: To be fair, the first wife... Died quite in tragic circumstances as well, but that might be a pod story. Okay, so you never save know.
0: it, save it.
1: So you never know. Pop uh, it in the pod bag. So yeah, she did know, she did know a little bit of, a little bit of joy. That's good. Before she good gal passed on. So well done, Caroline. Well Wait done, Caroline. So what are you giving us this week?
0: I'm taking us across the way to Edinburgh.
1: Really, we've never been there before. No, never heard of it. Never done that ever.
0: No, nope, no, nope, no. Nope. So I am going to tell you about <laughs> Queensberry House and some Never of the things of that happened there. It's um, it's a building of the 17th century, which is now a Category A listed building. It stands on the south side of the Canongate Gate in Edinburgh incorporated into the Scottish Parliament complex on its northwest corner. So I think I first became aware of this building when I did a tour of Scottish Parliament when I was about 14 or 15.
1: Hi, ah, yes, and and I was the like, rite oh, right of passage we all do at 14 yeah. or 15 in Scottish schools.
0: Yeah, that's it. <laughs> and I remember and... <laughs> my friend and I on the bus would just come up with what we wanted the different rooms to be. So we had, nice. we'd be like, yeah, blah, 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 politics, politics, politics. Well, that room is going to be our mattress surfing room. And this <laughs> room is going to be Velcro walls. We really, we wanted to live in the Parliament.
1: Oh, wow. Yeah.
0: Uh, so the mansion house was built in 1681 for Charles Maitland, Lord Hatton. Archaeological excavations in advance of the building of Scottish Parliament found evidence of metalworking in the kitchen likely related to the assaying and refining of precious metals. So that's quite fancy pants. That is fancy. Given that Lord Hatton was a master of the Scottish mint, the archaeologists have hypothesised that it may have been converted to a workshop to, date, to debase money from the royal mint. Maitland's house was bought by William Douglas, the first Duke of Queensbury in 1686, and he died in the house in 1695. And it was then passed on to his son James Douglas, second Duke of Queensberry, who was one of the Scottish peers signing the Treaty of Union in 1707. The public reaction to his involvement in the treaty was harsh, as it was seen as treasonous and self serving, and his house was attacked by the Edinburgh mob. Now, a side note William Douglas, the first duke, had a daughter as well called Lady Anne Douglas, who died when she was just 25, and it's believed it was because her clothes caught fire while she was praying.
1: Oh my God. Yeah.
0: That's tragic. Oh God. Yeah. So now when Big James Douglas dies in 1711, the house was passed on to his second son, Charles Douglas who was born in the house in 1698. His wife, Catherine Duchess of Queensberry, was the patroness of the poet John Gay, who visited several times. With the opening of the new town, many of the wealthy moved out of this area and the house ceased to be the principal residence of the dukes and was turned into rented accommodation. It was eventually sold to William Aitchison in 1801, who then stripped the interior of all of its fittings and... Uh, all the kind of fireplaces and beautiful wooden panelling and all that stuff gone adios
1: well that's just sad
0: this is the 1800s we don't want any of that goodbye from 1803 to 1996 the building was used as a hospital this included a period during the cholera epidemic in the 1830s when it was specifically used as a cholera hospital In the 1950s, it was a house of refuge and night asylum, which was a lodging house for homeless persons, and it continued to be used for this until the Second World War. In 1945, it became a home for the elderly, specifically elderly homeless people, on a more long-term basis for those, because they were elderly, it was a slightly more Mm long-term residence for them. And it wasn't until 1997 that it was acquired by the Scottish government. Now, you may well have clocked that I told you when James Douglas, II, Duke of Queensbury, died in 1711, that the house was passed on to his second son, Charles Douglas. So what happened to the first-born son? Yes. Hidden away in Queensbury House, there's a private bar reserved for MSPs and their guests, but they might not be quite so eager to enjoy the atmosphere if they knew the grisly history of what was once prepared in the oven it used to house.
1: And it sounds marginally disturbing.
0: Yes. Well, the first son... Are you
1: about to go a bit Sweeney Todd on us here? Sweeney, Sweeney, Sweeney. Yes, <laughs> potentially. Oh, God. The first
0: son, <laughs> James Douglas, was the third Marquess of Queensbury, and for a time the Earl of Drumlanrig, But he's more commonly known as the Queensbury House Cannibal.
1: Oh no. And for a
0: large portion of his short life, very few people even knew that he existed. He was considered violently insane and described as an imbecile from birth. He was kept under lock and key in a room on the ground floor with only a select few servants aware of his presence. He would go into violent rages, so we're told, even as a child, and was most unnaturally strong and could overpower grown men even as a child. He was very strong. God. It seems he was kept safe from other people, at least, and secure, until one night when the signing of the Act of the Union had the city and the household in disarray. With no guard on duty, the young earl had free reign of the household at last. Making his way to the kitchens, he found the one member of staff who hadn't been given or taken the night off. It was a young kitchen hand, whose name hasn't been recorded in the history books. And he caught the attention of James Douglas, and either out of hunger or rage, he attacked the servant. When members of the household returned, it was the smell of charred meat and the sight of the mad nobleman devouring the servant. James Douglas, at this point, was 10 years old. What? Yep. What? (laughs) So looking at this from 21st century eyes, we have to question both the events and the diagnosis of this little boy itself. Accounts describe him as a madman But this was a ten-year-old boy Who had probably never left the house If his room at all So much of the evidence here is speculation It's unclear as to whether he was non-verbal Or had made a confession But if the rest of the household was, household was out And the only other witness was roasted on a spit It's circumstantial evidence at best
1: mm-hmm.
0: Four years later James would be written out of the line of succession for his father's titles in favour of his younger brother Charles, who would become Privy Councillor and Vice Admiral of Scotland, two positions to which James would clearly have not been suited. James Douglas died in 1715 in Yorkshire while under the care of a Mr Richardson. Little else is known about his circumstances in the eight years between the alleged cannibal incident and his death, or why his death was registered so, fu- so very far away from his family. He would have just turned 18 years old. Despite the almost superhuman strength from the legend around him and the gruesome nature, nature of his supposed actions, he had only just matured into adulthood he would never get to see. Whether he lives on as a pint-sized bogeyman or as a tragic victim of his own circumstance, it is up to us to cast the stone. We can decide if yes. he is an evil little thing, but was just a boy, or if in fact the circumstance was so rough that we have to give him a little bit of forgiveness.
1: Is there any ever a good circumstance to eat a person?
0: I mean, not really, <laughs> but... He, if, he was, if he was a little bit unwell, and he was living in a period where the understanding of mental illness, obviously, was not great.
1: Well, yes, <clears> he most likely would have just been locked in a room.
0: Yeah, and if he was locked in there yeah. for long periods of time, then...
1: Then that's not, that's not okay, that's, that's not not bad. Okay. That
0: is bad, but also, you don't just attack a little person working away in the kitchen and cook them and eat them.
1: Not at 10
0: years old. I thought you were going to say he was at least least 35. Yeah, no, no, he was 10. (laughs) 10 years old. Uh, Now, history, or more likely gossip passed down as history, describes him as a cannibal. But there is no story, no, there's no previous stories that indicate that that was the case. And it's hard not to feel that the story is convenient for a family who needed a mentally competent head to retain and even increase their social standing. So could the story have been fabricated in order to make him seem mm. not appropriate to take the titles?
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: So perhaps the tale was circulated simply to justify removing James from the line of succession or from enemies of the family who wish to blacken its name. It could be, who knows? There could be different ways yeah. that the story came about. Either way, no one looked too closely at how an aristocrat, particularly an imprisoned child aristocrat, <laughs> i am saying cat
1: you're saying that.
0: Uh, aristocrat <laughs> with considerable mental health difficulties was able to not only operate the oven but roast someone on a spit so he was yeah so there are some ways it's easy to see how the story could actually just be fully fabricated
1: I mean, you'd think though, if they were like, if they wanted to be like, okay, he he shouldn't inherit; it, it should be the other one. Mm-hmm. They would maybe just go, yeah, he's just not well enough. Yeah, yeah, like,
0: which maybe leads us to the the story of somebody else coming up with it just to mar the name a little bit.
1: Yeah, I mean, cannibalism is quite a stretch, but it is like, A plus for creativity. I'll give you that. Yeah.
0: Um, well, as a city. Edinburgh loves its gruesome stories. Not even in London, with its Jack the Ripper tours, relishes its bloody past quite as much as Edinburgh does. But stories get embellished, layering on details or angles that aren't present in the original accounts, pandering to public prejudice just to get a gasp from a crowd or to share on social media. The Queensbury House Cannibal is a better headline than mental health, and learning difficulties didn't really have any helpful provision in the 18th century. And it was easier to turn people into monsters. And as a society, we're still taught to fear people we don't understand. But it shouldn't be. It shouldn't be. History is written by the victors, or at least those who survived and were privileged, eno- privileged enough to be able to write it. Edinburgh's history is particularly compelling, but that doesn't mean we can't interrogate it, ask why one particular version survives, and, wh- and what we gain by telling these stories. Stories of lunatics and madmen with axes still chill the blood, but people with mental illness are five times more likely to be murdered than they are to be murderers. And it's impossible not to see little James Douglas as much of a victim as the boy he supposedly ate. Even now, more than 300 years after the Queensbury House incident, the mentally ill lose their citizenship by virtue of their diagnosis in some countries. I think the US, there was particular cases relatively recently and uh, they may well lose the place in the family unit where they are no longer able to fulfill the function of scaling the social ladder it does happen so it could have been happening 300 years ago at queens at this Queensbury house so is the story all real is the story not real who knows but it's a good story nonetheless but we also have to take account of not vilifying people with, mental, people with mental illness. But anyway, that is the story of Queensberry House.
1: I, I mean, I didn't even know that was a building that did exist.
0: It's quite a nice building. I believe it's yellow. Yellow? Yellow. I'm sure it is. Queensberry House. Nope. <laughs> it's white. Nope. <laughs> but in my mind, oh, it's got a tinge. I found that uh, an article about how history... May use people with mental illness as a villain just to tell a story that gets a gasp.
1: Yeah. Yeah, yeah.
0: This person who wrote this article, they were like, "Yes, we have a bloody history, and yes, this is a good story, and it's interesting to think that a 10-year-old was strong enough to wrangle somebody and put them on a spit to then eat them. But yeah, it is a good point that they are using a person with mental illness to tell a story and it could be that it was used to to blacken the name of the family or it could be yeah. to justify him not getting titles but regardless yeah, yeah, yeah. um it's a good point
1: yeah it's how like historically looking at it how you used kind of anyone with differences mm-hmm. i suppose a good like another a good example could be like richard iii yeah is often vilified as this kind of like mean cruel person with like what is it they say like oh, a withered arm and like a humped back when actually yeah. he might have just had scoliosis
0: yeah 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 totally
1: so he would have had a difference historically in their mind that made him a good well victim really yeah to like easily slander like uh, the beast yeah. in beauty the beast that's also another very good (laughs)
0: example (laughs) although he wasn't a very nice man
1: he wasn't he eventually saw the light which was nice he
0: did and that light's name was bale
1: there you go yeah there you go um Um, well if you ever play the beast again you could maybe use the queensberry cannibal as character inspiration i will
0: (laughs) i will i'll think about your mind yeah
1: Um, I've got plenty of politicians I could base it on Oh well
0: Because there's many of them Some of them really are
1: real life villains They
0: are Those are people we should vilify, no probs, don't worry about it (laughs) As always Please pop along to our Instagram And our Facebook Give us likes and follows there We post all of our corresponding photos Up there every week And it just gives you a nice little visual To go along with the story along with our Magic Hat Mondays where you can give your responses to our questions, our We Love a Link Wednesdays where we join links between different stories that we've told and of course Fun Fact Friday where you will learn some kind of fun Scottish fact.
1: If you happen to have a question for the magical hat, if you either email us or message us it over, it will be written down on a little sheet of paper folded up and go straight into the hat where it may feature on future episodes. Also if you happen to own an Apple device, if you could head on over to that little purple logo of Apple Podcasts and leave us a little review. It would be much appreciated and helps us in the massive podcast algorithm of the world.
0: And thank you for listening to a wee bit gothic.
1: What's that gothic?
0: A wee bit.